Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you on digital tape, as I will be doing for the foreseeable future from my home in Brooklyn. Uh, welcome. Thanks for joining me. I know you have many things to do. Um, you may be spending less time on podcasts than you normally do. I appreciate you taking some time to hang out with me and my guests. Uh, I'm very appreciative. I hope everyone is well and safe um, and that you're able to hopefully take care of someone else. I also hope these podcasts are providing you with some value. Again, we're happy to hear what you guys would like to hear about in the coming days and weeks. Today, we've got a bunch of different guests common theme. You can guess what it is. We're going to talk to Taylor Lorenz from the New York Times about how the pandemic is affecting social media. Um, pretty interesting. Taylor's very smart. You guys heard from her in August. We're also going to hear from Campbell Brown, who heads up news partnerships at Facebook. Facebook says it's going to give $100 million uh, specifically targeted to local news operations. Targeted. Uh, they've been really struggling with the pandemic. All media companies are struggling with the pandemic. Local news is in a really, really, really dire situation. We talked about those efforts and how Facebook's dealing with the pandemic in general. Uh, and then a slight change of pace, Sarah Larson, who writes about podcasts, how meta for The New Yorker. We're going to talk to her about podcasts in the time of pandemic. See, I told you there was a theme. Sarah is also fun. And we also engage in our mutual delight over uh, 1970s uh, trucker culture. It was a thing. You got to believe me. Okay. This is my conversation with Taylor. Again, um, Taylor, I think, is probably one of our, our most successful guests. I mean, in terms of reaching an audience that's really responsive to what she has to say, um, you're going to hear from her right now. Hi, Taylor. How are you? Hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, the last time we saw you, you, you were working for The Atlantic. Uh, I guess you have some personal news to share. <laughs> yeah, I joined uh, the New York Times last August. Yeah, it's been great. <laughs> so, so we've read. Um, thanks for coming back. I wasn't planning on having you back since so soon, but it's a pandemic, and you're an internet expert, and I want to talk to you about what's going on on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, everyone knows that we're all spending a bunch of time at home on the internet. A lot of us are using apps and social media, maybe that we haven't used before, and a lot of us are maybe using social media and apps in ways that we didn't intend to. Um, and I want to talk to you about all of that. What's the biggest surprise that you've seen writing about this and covering about this the last few weeks in terms of the way people have have adapted internet and social media to uh, to this circumstance? 
Well, I'm really surprised by the rise of Zoom. I mm-hmm. guess it's not that surprising that everyone would rely on a video conference yeah. platform. I guess I was just surprised that Zoom was it. I feel like Google Hangouts has kind of been the default, at least for me. Um, but now I'm a Zoom head myself. So I, I found there's very much you can sort of it's like looking at a, uh, you know, when you cut a tree and you can look at the ring and see how old the tree is. You can sort of tell people's age by their their initial uh app of choice, right? I've got uh, various uh, people I've talked to who are asking to do Skype. Oh my gosh. Uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I just finished a Skype call myself. And some of it is geographic though. Like I did a TV hit with some people in Europe and, and they wanted to do it via Skype. And so I think some of that is, is institutional, but some of it just age. Uh, FaceTime, um, only one Google Hangout request in, in my sphere. Uh, and then everyone has used Zoom. Um, I think you brought the word Zoom bombing into the popular lexicon. I actually cannot take credit for inventing it, though. Josh Constein invented it. I did write about it and hopefully bring it to more of the masses. But As I said, you brought it to national consciousness. <laughs> so in case you are not familiar with Zoom bombing is, why don't you tell us what that is? Zoom bombing is essentially when somebody joins a Zoom meeting and takes it over. Zoom has a default screen share setting set to on. Um, Mm -hmm. And so anybody can just hop in a public Zoom and quickly start broadcasting whatever there's on their screen. Sometimes this is porn, problematic videos. (laughs) So it's done. It's a it's a prank, essentially. Right. I mean, it could be a mean spirited prank, depending on what you're doing. Yeah, it absolutely veers into harassment in some cases. So I hadn't heard of the term. Uh, before I read your piece. And I was like, oh, no, this is... And I could see the sort of the contours of the way the story was going to turn out. This is a corporate sort of IT thing that I've used a lot uh, professionally, um, but it wasn't designed for these big social use cases. Now it's being used as a default social network. You can sort of see the problems, except that midway through your piece, they actually, this is a really easy problem to resolve. There's a button you that the host puts on and prevents all this. You just, you allows, it prevents people from sharing their screen, problem solved. Yeah, um, it is a little bit hidden, but um, yeah, I mean, it is it, it's a solvable problem. The issue, I think, is is awareness and understanding. Yeah. Like you said, everyone's been forced onto this platform overnight, and you know, a lot of people don't have a an understanding of that. You know, they don't know how to navigate it. There is a story. Uh, I'm going to call it up while we talk about the FBI in Boston warning of Zoom bombing. <laughs> oh my god. Um, uh, this is a actual story of from the Boston Channel, the NBC affiliate there. FBI warns of Zoom bombing after two mass high schools have web conferences hijacked. So if you just look at that headline, you think, oh, no, this technology is being used to bomb schools or threaten schools. But we're just talking about the same thing. Yeah. Um, Okay. It's a lot of time kids also, it's like a popular thing to yeah. trade links, you know, to your Zoom classes. And it, there's a lot of mischief. Um, but there's also a lot of harassment. Yeah, but it seems like this should not be an FBI warning. Uh, no, I mean, that's pretty extreme. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> there is there is something here, though, that speaks to sort of the way that so many people are, are consuming or interacting with tech in general that they haven't done before. And this goes beyond Zoom, right? Just lots of grandmothers, lots of relatives. Uh, lots of mother, I'm saying mother-in-laws, it's on my, on my mind, using tech they haven't used before, uh, being asked to do things. Um, are you talking to people? I mean, you generally sort of focus on the younger end of the bell curve, right? Uh, are I, you thinking about how, how older folks, people who are not as tech savvy are interacting with this stuff? Yeah, I don't always, I think 
people mostly read my stories about younger people, mm-hmm. but I write about everyone of all ages. I mean, I've written a ton about mom culture and the internet and, mm-hmm. um, you know, mom groups are obviously going crazy. It's very, moms are extremely online right now because they're dealing with the kids. And I just wrote a piece with um, Nathaniel Popper, who's another tech reporter here on GoFundMe and, um, you know, our nation's reliance on that. And for that, you know, it's mostly these small business owners that have to become social media marketers to raise money to get by, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, it is interesting. I do think, like you said, um, most of my stories focus on young people because those are who are, you know, extremely online yep. and now everyone is extremely online. So. Is there any other sort of ancient tech that has, that has revived that, that you're noticing any, any, any old AOL dial-up account tech that this coming back into vogue? Well, I I mean, I think the phone call is coming back. A lot of people, you know, a lot more people are just like relying on the phone, um, which is interesting because people have sort of eschewed that for a long time. What's the correct etiquette now if I want to call someone on the phone? Do I have to text them first? Do I have to email? Do I have to set it up? Or can I, I find that even with my close family, maybe even more so, if I call them, they get very alarmed. Yeah, you got to you got to shoot a text over first. <laughs> Otherwise, okay. you think it's an emergency. So that's standard protocol. I have to, I'm going to call you now. That, I think is, it's like how you text someone when you're outside their house, you know, just uh-huh. to be like, hey, I'm, I'm here instead of ringing the doorbell. I think texts are just like a way to be like, hey, are yeah. you ready? Can you okay. chat? As opposed to just showing up in someone's foyer. Yeah. <laughs> Last time you were on, we talked a lot about TikTok. You were explaining TikTok to a lot of us. Uh, so Two two brackets of TikTok questions. One, what is what has happened to TikTok since we talked? But well, that was summer of 2018. I read a ton of TikTok stories, um, but I also read some stories that say that TikTok use had had plateaued over time. That it wasn't a fad that had died, but it it, it was not kind of in the way that Snapchat hit a wall. That TikTok seemed to have hit a wall. I would say unlike, well, I would say unlike Snapchat, TikTok, because it gets amplified across platforms like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, um, has a much larger cultural impact that I think has only significantly grown since 2017, um, or sorry, 2018 when they launched in the US. Um, And especially when you think about their role in influencer culture. I mean, all of these big um, Hollywood agencies now have pivoted to signing TikTok influencers and scouting talent there. That's definitely where the next young generation of influencers and creators is living. Um, but it, yeah, I don't know in terms of daily use um, sort of where the numbers are at. I would guess during quarantine it's peaked a bit because um, kids are on it all the time. Is, is there a difference between uh, a TikTok influencer and an Instagram influencer? It seems like they should be pretty portable. Um, yeah, big time. I yeah. mean, I, what performs well on Instagram is not what performs well on TikTok. What performs well on TikTok are these very meme kind of funny dance videos. Um, you know, it's much more creativity and raw content um, than Instagram. I mean, that said, what what's performing well on TikTok is very like of the moment. And I think it's porting over to Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, challenge culture, for instance, has been huge on TikTok and I think is coming back on Instagram, partly because of the amount of TikTok stuff that's crossing over. Um, you know, for instance, JLo doing the couples challenge, that's a big TikTok trend or the flip the switch challenge, which was a TikTok trend um, that sort of spread to the masses through Instagram and Twitter. And then I saw via Saturday Night Live. So we Right, it eventually makes its way there when all the old people kind of find it. I'm raising my hand as an old people. And and, and again, like I just recently started following Jack Black on Instagram and Jack Black apparently is using his Instagram to promote his YouTube channel where he does gaming videos. Then on Twitter this morning, I saw that Jack Black was trending. And the reason he was trending was because he was on TikTok. 
Mm-hmm. But the TikTok video was the same video that was on Instagram. So I think depending on maybe the, the kind of person they are using these these platforms interchangeably. Yeah. I mean, the big thing is diversifying. You never want to be too reliant on one platform. So so back to the, the pandemic and the way people are responding, is, is the kind of content that is trending, that is popular on TikTok, is that changing in response to what's going on? Or, or would this kind of look the same as it would have three months ago? No, absolutely not. I mean, TikTok is like Twitter, where people use it to sort of comment on things in real time. So people are making reactions to the news. There's tons of political commentary. There's tons of, you know, discussion about current events, funny videos. I would say the velocity has increased a lot, but, you know, the content is very sort of news specific. And and this was becoming a story before the pandemic and now is continuing in a different direction. But TikTok is owned by a Chinese company, which if you're a Chinese company, you're then working with the Chinese government. There have been a lot of questions about one should you know, how how should U.S. consumers feel about interacting with a Chinese company? And then what kind of censorship uh, would users be subject to? How is that playing out in the pandemic? Well, Douyin is totally separate, which is the Chinese version of the TikTok. And mm-hmm. then they have this international version, which they're very adamant that they don't censor. Um, mm-hmm. I, I haven't found any examples of them, like, censoring anything specifically in the U.S. Um, but they do have these, like, guidelines that The Intercept actually got a hold of saying that they were, like, essentially recommending that, you know, only beautiful people appear on the For You page, stuff like that. Uh, that's kind of the stuff that tech companies do to spark engagement. Um, you know, Which is in, different than censorship, just saying. Absolutely. You know, kind of no different. shit, right? If you're an attractive person, you're going to do better on the social course, platforms. Of course, of um, course. So, you know, I know that TikTok, I believe, was searching for a, a, new, a sort of like a CEO based outside of China to kind of dispel right. some of those concerns. Um, but, you know, I think we're it's funny because we're finally seeing, you know, this tech company kind of come into America and dominate the way that a lot of U.S. tech companies like Facebook have come into these countries and completely upended different systems. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. I, the Times has a lot of people suddenly covering tech. Do, are you paying attention to the way all the platforms are handling uh, misinformation about the pandemic and, and trying to put out specifically good information, or is that someone else or other yeah. people at the time? Yeah, well, we all are in the same Slack channel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I definitely pay attention to misinformation. Um, my colleagues, Kevin Roos and Charlie Warzel, focus yep. on that more specifically. I read about it. I read everything Ben Collins and Brandy Zardozny post at NBC. I think there are leaders in the space, too. Um but I don't really cover misinformation as much my beats culture. We had talked last time you were on about sort of fatigue that people had with different platforms and and, and public sharing and, and sort of a retreat to groups um, and more private sharing and that sort of fit with where Mark Zuckerberg said things were going to go. Are you seeing more of that happening in response to the pandemic or are people actually more interested in reaching more people and having more connection with people maybe they don't know? Yeah, I mean, you're seeing both, but the trend towards groups is, yeah, is, it's been exacerbated by this. I mean, you could look at Zoom calls, for instance, as like a giant group chat. Um, it's, it's sort of this in-the-moment conversation with um, an inherently small number of people because once it gets too big, it gets unwieldy. So, um, you know, people are also, you're seeing explosion in, in different Facebook groups. Um, there's tons of Facebook groups cropping up around sort of pandemic-themed stuff, um, Zoom memes for self-quarantines, I think, has more than 300,000 uh, college kids in it now. Um, oh, no. But there is this, yeah, there is this other, other urge to connect. I mean, especially around dating, I've seen a lot of, um, you know, like Google dating through Google Docs or FaceTime Hangouts or kind of blind dates. Um, so I think people are speaking, looking for spontaneous connections as well, but mostly spending time with 
um, the people they know through FaceTime. Is there a pandemic star? Has the moment hatched people who, who were unheard of and now are a big deal? Well, yeah. And unfortunately, they're they're mainly the kind of misinformation type of influencers. Um, oh, I was Ryan, hoping you would tell me a happy story <laughs> instead. Tell me this No, one. but Ryan Broderick wrote a really good piece on this about the sort of so-called influencers of the pandemic. And, Where can um, I read that? It's on BuzzFeed. Okay. Um, and it was just a great look at kind of these people that have grown, you know, huge in platforms by promoting specific drugs or, you know, promoting a certain view on the crisis. So I think we've seen a lot of that. There's no kind of like lifestyle influence. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me there was a kid in Oklahoma or, or Trinidad or, or somewhere who, who just popped out of the consciousness because they created a dance or a funny meme. And it's well, there are people a new like version that of the backpack kid. Yeah, that's, that's happening anyway. Yeah, that always happens. So it's still happening. Okay. Is, is it a good time to be an internet reporter during a pandemic? Is it a bad time? This is the best time because everyone's online. And I think people are finally, you know, starting to understand that there's not a distinction between internet culture and culture. Um, and so that's a good thing, I think, for my beat. A lot of times people write my stories off or, you know, people just you kind of think, oh, that's happening in some corner of the internet. And now we're all yeah. forced to live online. So... This is your time, Taylor Run. This is your world. We're just living in it. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah. All right. I know you're busy. I'm busy. We're going to let you go. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Be well. Take care. Thanks again, Taylor. Right now, we're going to hear from one of our fine sponsors who we love more than ever. Here's Campbell Brown from Facebook. Hi, Campbell. How are you? Hey. Am I allowed to ask how you're doing? I, I can't remember the protocol anymore. <laughs> Um, I think we're all doing about the same, right? The best we can, given the circumstances. Uh, that is that is a concise way of putting it. Thanks for taking time. Uh, I want to talk to you about what Facebook's doing during the pandemic, specifically about journalism. Uh, and right on cue, you guys announced a $100 million program to support local journalism. Um, it's possible some people who listen to the show haven't seen that announcement. So give me the the, the one-minute summary of what that program is. Yeah. Um, well, what we're trying to do, it's $100 million all in. Um, we're trying to target grant money toward uh, local news in the U.S. So $25 million of that is going to go uh, in the form of grants to local news operations um, here. And that's a straight check to the to the news organizations. Yeah. And what we'll do, um, this is sort of building on a pilot program that we had mm -hmm. where we started with a million dollars. We work with organizations like Lion, um, Linfest, um, the local media association to help us um, actually execute on these grants and vet everything. We tried it with a million dollars. We got a thousand applications and it was immediately clear how desperate people were and how much need was there in this circumstance. And um, so we you know, sat down and really tried to think how we could do this in a much bigger way. The rest of it is $75 million that will be in marketing spend, uh, which is additional money that Facebook um, advertising had not plan to direct to news organizations, but will now direct to news organizations. I think typically as a company, we sort of over-index with big companies and don't you know, do marketing or advertising with local news or smaller um, news organizations. So uh, this will be an interesting opportunity for us to do that, I think. And 75 million will be global. And we're going to target those areas that have been hardest hit by the virus. So that's money Facebook will spend to advertise Facebook on those platforms, on those uh, within those publishers. We don't, I mean, some will probably be Facebook ads, but that's a lot of marketing money uh -huh. to spend. 
end. And so I think we're going to try to be creative and look at things like potentially buying the ad time and then donating it to small businesses in some of these communities that have been incredibly hard hit. Also, potentially just giving it to those news organizations so that they can potentially market themselves at a moment like this when, you know, news consumption is way up. Uh, Subscriptions even are way up. But because of the loss in advertising revenue, people are just really hurting. So, um, you know, if we can try to bridge that gap during this period, I think it could be meaningful. Because there is my, my colleague, Teddy Schleifer, just wrote a piece about sort of what Silicon Valley is, is offering uh, various people and what, and what they aren't. And there's this question about in-kind stuff. But this sounds like it is cash you are spending one yes. way or another that will go directly to them. It's not money they need to spend on Facebook ads or something. No, 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 no. It should be to their bottom line. Yeah. I mean, you know what's going on in local news, Peter. I mean, we're we're hearing about layoffs, pay cuts. At a moment, and this is what's so striking to me, at a moment when we're all reminded of how critical not only news is, obviously, but how critical our local news is. You know, we're, we're thinking about in this moment, how are my neighbors doing? Um, is my grocery store still open? You know, what's going on at my local hospital? And so the idea that local reporting is going to take a hit and that those people we're so reliant on are going to get laid, laid off in this moment because of the economic fallout from the outbreak, you know, is crazy. And I feel like if this, you know, if there's one thing we could do right now, um, this is a, an incredibly important one. Uh, where did you get the hundred million number for? I'm assuming that at some point you asked, thought about a bigger one. And, and and do you imagine this is sort of like the stimulus package where you start with two <laughs> trillion and then someone's going to go back for a second dip? Well, we this is on top of what we started a couple of years ago, which is we made a pledge. Um, for th- to spend $300 million over three years with a big focus on local news. So this will be another 100 on top of that that I hope will be meaningful just because this environment has changed, you know, and I don't, I don't think any of us know how long this is going to go on or the impact it's going to have. All businesses are going to suffer because of advertising revenue dropping so um, <laughs> dramatically. But I think this is, feels like an emergency fund to me. Um, <laughs> but you know, my, my emphasis, I think long-term, and I want to think long-term, although it feels like in this moment, that's harder to do. But what we have been doing is like trying to figure out what the long-term business model is and work with news organizations on subscription acquisitions and all marketing and all the things they've been doing to like really build the business. But you can't do any of those things if your advertising revenue has completely crashed and you're having to lay people off. Yeah, I'm wondering because we, you know, we've been talking about a local news crisis for quite some time. It hasn't gotten better. Um, and now it's, you know, this this could very well push a lot of places right over the edge. I think it uh, will. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm really, really worried. Yeah, I, I think it will, too. And, and I think you could spend several hundred million and it would still be the case. Um, are you thinking about things that Facebook can do to uh, replace is going to sound like the wrong word? Right. Augment. Say, look, there just aren't enough bodies at local papers in some communities. In some communities, there are no local papers anymore where we could do more than just ask the community to post, you know, get well wishes where we could actually provide crucial resources that a, we would expect a local paper to do. Like, here's where you go to get testing. Here's how you impl- uh, apply for unemployment or an SBA loan. And then beyond that, even like do I can't imagine this would happen, but actually do some of the reporting that a local newspaper would normally do? I don't think that's our role. 
But I do, I mean, I can give you examples of the kind of thing we're seeing, which is um, as some local newspapers are transitioning to digital, um, they cut back on their staffs. Where I see us going with this as a partnership where we can build products that would help a local uh, news reporter make a living. So, you know, this is the very early stage of doing that. But with the launch of Facebook News, which is a new tab within Facebook that yep. is a destination for news, um, we, we want to make sure that there's a big local component because every survey we do, the number one thing um, that people say they want is local news. So if we can build a product where, let's say, worst case scenario, you know, a local paper goes under and and there are two or three reporters in a small community who say, we want to continue doing the sort of reporting that you're talking about. Like, you know, what's going on with the school board? What's going on with our local mayor? Can we build products where they almost operate like creators, you know, make money on Instagram? Can we build products that would allow them through subscriptions and through our tools, build enough of an audience and get enough traffic that it would be meaningful enough for them to continue to do the work they're doing? We're not there yet. I mean, this is this yeah. is when I talk about the long term, the things we're working on. It's getting Facebook news to a place where it can potentially be that not only for the big nationals, but also for local. And then, you know, building in the additional products to accept donations, um, tips in some cases are, are things we're experimenting with. And like this, these are the kind of moments when you, you know, the Guardian has done this so effectively where you, you know, they tell an important story. And then they say at the end of the story, if you found this news yep. valuable, please make a contribution. And I, I can promise you in this moment, everyone is so reminded how valuable journalism is that they are willing to step up. You know, we're seeing that with the subscription numbers jumping, but it's just not enough to offset the advertising revenue. The last time I talked to you, maybe not on the podcast, maybe just an actual conversation, was about the, the news tab and the licensing program you guys announced. Uh, was it last year? All my timelines are blurring together. Yes, yeah. Yeah, feels like decades ago. Yeah, and most of the headlines were about how much the Times, the Journal was going to make, and what the Breitbart should be in the uh, should be in the tab. Um, and I think you guys did talk about local. Can you talk about how local fits into that licensing program? Yeah, so, so we have done some licensing with local, but you know, in my view, not enough. Um, and so that was partly why the twenty-five million to me was even more critical um, in terms of the grant money. We haven't figured out quite yet. I mean, we, we experimented with a product called Today In that now we're trying, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it would, if you went to Facebook, you could, um, you know, whatever your local town is. Um, I'm from New Orleans, so I, I follow Today in New Orleans and it would give you access to all the news and information about New Orleans. So we're trying to transfer the Today In product and what it gave people into the Facebook news so that, that, you know, you go to Facebook news, you see the top stories of the day curated by Ann Kornbluth's team of journalists, mm -hmm. but you also see today in your town and giving you the, the access and ability to access that content immediately. We're just not there yet in terms of the product because we, you know, we only launched it a couple of months ago for it to really be meaningful for local um, we started with nationals, so we were paying publishers, you know, the big publishers, to have access to all of their content yep. in order to get the kind of the, the mass quantity of news we needed to build the product. So we're just getting there with local, and I hope to do more. We just haven't, the product hasn't quite progressed that far yet. 
Is there a roadmap where you're actually writing checks to individual journalists who used to work at the local paper, but there is no local paper or now it's a skeleton crew, but they're doing really good school board work and you could give them 40 grand, whatever the number is, and they could continue to do that? You know, I don't know. I mean, Mark has talked to us, the news team, about trying to figure out how to support not just news organizations, but journalists, because um, so many journalists are finding an audience, you know, especially those who specialize in a given topic, um, finding an audience that follows them as opposed to a, you know, they are the brand. I would argue, Peter, you might be the brand. And that's possible. So how do we do that? How can we support that? We're not there yet, but I do think it's an interesting idea. And I do think that may be the direction we're headed. Okay. I'm not applying for the Facebook uh, license fee or grant (laughs) yet. I, I do, I, you know, normally whenever I talk to you, we end up having some sort of is Facebook a publisher discussion and also a fake news discussion. So let's let's have a very quick one. Mark had a, a, a good discussion with Dr. Fauci uh, recently. Again, I can't remember what it was sometime in the last couple of weeks. Uh, it was useful, provided useful information. Again, that seems like what a publisher does. Um, is there any discussion when you guys, I mean, maybe you're not even involved in this about what that means when the CEO of Facebook is talking to a, a, an epidemiologist and doctor about what's going on and what information people should have. It seems like it's very actively saying, for the good, this is information we think you should know and we're going to tell you about it. I think this crisis is unique. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll be really honest. We are using this moment to try to reexamine our approach and to make sure that we are fulfilling a duty. I think we have a duty to give people accurate news in every way possible. And, you know, if that's what gets people to watch and to pay attention, then I think it's worth doing. I mean, what we it's not just Mark interviewing Dr. Fauci. It's um, quickly after the pandemic started, we built out a covid specific collection that was curated by Anne's team, that small team of journalists, to try to highlight, you know, the top national stories around the virus. And within that, we've been testing, can we throw in, you know, CDC and World Health Organization original material to give importance to those updates? You know, is that publishing? We have journalists who are making these decisions to get that information out there, but there are so many people who are in need of it in this moment, that I think it is a responsibility we have. You're a publisher, and that's a, that's a good thing on. in this case. I, I, I mean, what we want to do, and, and the other thing that we launch, which is, I think, the best example of how we're trying to do this, is this COVID-19 Information Center that we've launched in the U.S., Italy, France, Spain, Germany, the U.K., and I think Singapore. And we're trying to expand it further. But what it is, is is providing people that basic information from World Health Organization, CDC, here are the latest stats, but then also just pulling together the best stories, the most helpful uh, information that's coming from publishers who are doing the real reporting. I mean, you're, you know, Mark interviewing Dr. Fauci is great. It, it, it makes it interesting. People will watch, but they're the real reporting around this crisis is coming from, you know, journalists real journalists at news organizations. and But if we can curate that material and package it in a way so that more people will see it, it will have visibility. I mean, the COVID center sits at the top of your newsfeed. It's the yep. first thing you see. So, I, you know, we, in, in a situation like this, you know, it feels like a hurricane. Like you, like this is critical information that people need to get. And we have a responsibility to 
to show it in a way that gets to the most people um, possible. You're, you're getting pinged. I'm going to let you go on one last with one last question. Um, and I'm sorry about the pings. I should sure. have turned them off. It's, it's the I, I, Listen, I don't know how to turn my pings off either. I, I'm new to podcasting, but me I'm, too. I'm following your lead. There is some news that is coming out that then gets revised, and there it's from like I'm thinking of. Uh, well, initially there was a lot of downplaying of, of the pandemic. Uh, this is this equivalent of the flu, not as bad as the flu. It came in many cases from well-meaning people. In some cases, it was information people got from the CDC and the WHO, um, World Health Organization. Um, similarly, it seems like we're going to reevaluate how we feel about masks. Um, we were told not to wear them, and now we're going to be told to wear them, it sounds like. And Facebook has always struggled with sort of fact-checking and fake news and sort of uncomfortable making any kind of decisions about even stuff that's relatively clear-cut. It seems like now we're in a, uh, now I'm also thinking about does this drug work or not, where we really don't know answers. And it seems like it's increasingly difficult for Facebook or anyone else to filter this stuff through. Are you guys rethinking how you're approaching that stuff? You know, Mark has talked about this a little bit because he has said that in this moment, I mean, this is this is more clear cut than politics, where you have a lot more gray area, where, you know, we're constantly having these internal debates about what we should and shouldn't yep. be doing around political speech. But this is a, a situation where I think you will see us be more aggressive. And Mark has said that um, because it's, you know, people's health, imminent risk. So we are turning up the dial in terms of the content that we would take down. You know, hoaxes flying around that say things like, if you drink bleach, right. you know, that will cure coronavirus. I so hoaxes, hoaxes I get and, and shouldn't drink bleach. Some stuff is is up for debate, though, right? Is this is this medicine that's being, uh, there's a trial in France and China. What do we make out of it? You can read very sober uh, uh, clinical discussions of it. And people, it's kind of a shrug. We don't know. Um, and it seems like it's harder in many ways than to handle some of the political claims. Um, I think in that case, we are going to be extremely careful and rely on the experts. I mean, okay. that's why we have been sort of focused on the World Health Organization, CDC, giving Dr. Fauci as much airtime as he could possibly want, um, because we don't know. We don't know the answers. And, and I think there's so much about this. All of us don't know. It's what makes it so scary. But I would not. Um, I mean, the hoaxes and the the anything that's presenting imminent danger to people. I want us to be as aggressive as possible about those are really hard calls. And, you know, we have third party fact checkers. We've um, increased the number of grants. I just did another million dollars. My team helps run that program to that group. But they are, you know, they're never going to be able to track every piece of content on Facebook, but they are very focused right now on the COVID piece of this. And it's trained journalists who are looking at this material and trying to give an assessment, you know, with an overlay that says this has been fact checked. This is false. This is true to help give some guidance there. But, you know, given the amount of content on Facebook and every other platform right now, you're going to have um, some confusion. And I think we just have to go keep pushing people back to the source whether it's World Health Organization or CDC or what. Thank you, Campbell. Appreciate your time. Peter, great to talk to you always. Take care. Be well. Be safe. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Thanks, Campbell. Sorry I jumped off the uh, call quickly there. Here is Sarah Larson from The New Yorker. I'm here with Sarah Larson from The New Yorker. Is it fair to call you The New Yorker's podcast correspondent? Sure, you can call me that. I think I saw that somewhere in in your bio. (laughs) Uh, You write about podcasts for The New Yorker, among other things. I do, yeah. I write a column called Podcast Department. Who knew that was a job a couple of years ago? (laughs) 
it wasn't. Thank you for coming on. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, podcasts we may or may not want to listen to right now and, and how we think podcasting will or won't respond to, to the pandemic and the moment that we're in now and maybe in for a long time. I'm just curious, because uh, this is a topic that many people in the podcasting business are talking about right now. Uh, yeah. Are you personally listening to less podcasting than you used to, the same amount? Um, a lot of folks I know just naturally are listening to much less because they're not commuting. I know. And that sort of surprised me. I mean, it, I think it all depends on what your living situation is, obviously. Um, I live by myself and part of my job is to write about podcasts. So I'm not really a good test case. Yeah. I listen to them a lot. But I also like to listen to podcasts when I'm just, you know, doing dishes or forcing myself to tidy up or something. And I figured people would want to be kept company by podcasts. Yeah, I kind of thought that too. And then I've been doing my own inventory and it's, you know, there's some late night, like I want to unwind with a comedy podcast. I'll do that. And that's kind of it. Everything else that was in my podcasting, you know, going to the gym, the actual walk to the gym, the being in the gym, all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And I, you know, I've got kids around the house and I can't put my headphones in it. Well, I can do that, but I shouldn't. <laughs> well, I was thinking for people who live in a household with a bunch of other people, it would be a nice way to, if you can take time for yourself, sort of connect to other voices without hogging a screen or yeah. I don't know. I think people are going to be listening to podcasts. Just maybe right. not the, the commute has changed, obviously. Well, we both have a vested interest in that being true. I wanted you to talk <laughs> about some podcasts that you think we might want to listen to. I want to put them in two buckets, stuff that, that is specific to the pandemic and what's going on and stuff that you think you might want to listen to because it's not about that or it's yeah. just good for the moment. Well, I have one more thought about the way it changes listening for us right now, which uh -huh. is that Part of the magic of podcasts, I think, is that they create this, this intimate hangaround space, depending on what kind of podcasts you're listening to. They're kind of where people are chatting with each other and you feel like you're one of that gang. You know, there are some that are more narrative that are stories, obviously, but, but for the first kind of podcasts, I think you sort of want to see how those guys are doing, you know, and, and how are all those people adjusting to this time? So... It's been sort of sweet. I noticed I've listened to a few podcasts. I've checked in on some of the usuals and a lot of them are just putting extra episodes in their feed to sort of say hi and check in with the producers and the various people involved and connect with the listeners. It's your extended family, right? It's yeah, your, yeah. So yeah. one of the podcasts that did that is Happier with Gretchen Rubin. Have you ever heard that? I have not. She's a writer and she's incredibly productive and incredibly chipper, which doesn't sound appealing. Uh -huh. But actually, it can be. And she has this podcast with her sister, who's also pretty charming. And they just did an episode about sort of how to be happier during this time. And one of the things she suggested was to keep a journal, which I actually thought was a great idea. Because I feel like we're all kind of reeling and just trying to make sense of what's going on without really taking time to appreciate that we're in a historic moment. And we're going to want to look back sometime and wonder what that was like for us, you know? Yeah. Maybe so. you do that instead of tweeting about it or Facebook. <laughs> maybe <it>. both. Yeah. <laughs> it's tweeting is good to connect. So anyway, there are some other podcasts that have done that, like heavyweight. Do you listen to heavyweight Jonathan Goldstein? No. no. That's a wonderful podcast uh, about, it's basically just, it's sort of a mystery each week about something from somebody's past. So somebody um, 
comes to Jonathan, who's very funny and very personable, and says, you know, I haven't been able to stop thinking about this bike trip I took when I was 10 with two other kids that changed my life, three other kids. And I wonder if it changed theirs too. We, we took this trip for three days unsupervised. It was the 70s. Nobody believes me that it even happened. Like, what happened to those guys and where are they now? You know. Mm-hmm. So then he'll find them somehow and do this beautiful journey about just about the past and memory and life and personalities. And um, it's one of my favorite podcasts. And then uh, I listened to the latest episode of the Nancy podcast, and they checked in with um, an organization called um, SAGE that works with housebound gay seniors. And they just called somebody who was in that program and saw how she was doing. And and that was very nice. Um, so, you know, and then Reply All has one about, I, I don't know, everybody's just sort of... Um, doing episodes that show how people are adjusting. Yeah. Do you have a desire for escapist stuff, stuff that has nothing to do with the moment? Yes, absolutely. Let's hear about Um, some of those. (laughs) Well, I just wrote about this, actually. Um, For the first time in The New Yorker, in in the print magazine, uh, we devoted goings-on about town to things that you can do at home. Obviously, we wouldn't have done that yeah. before. Um, and so podcasts was one of the sections. And we're going to keep doing that for the near future or for <laughs> however long mm-hmm. we need to do it. So, yeah, I just wrote about this podcast called Over the Road, which is about trucking. <laughs> and it's really delightful. And it has original music by its host, Long Haul Paul. And it's just all about the history and culture of trucking in the United States. And it has just some really beautiful sound design. That's from Radiotopia PRX. Okay. I wasn't thinking trucking as, as an escapist podcast, but you, you've had... What could be more escapist? You are on the I, road. I That's know. good. Yeah. You may not be old enough to remember 70s trucking culture. CB. but it was CBs, yeah. I am <laughs> yeah. that old. I am that old. DJ and the Bear, I am that DJ old. DJ and the Bear. There was a whole genre of stuff with like a trucker and a chimp. You know, yep. there was... There was a Clint Eastwood movie. <laughs> right, that yeah. As my, truck, as my profile. Every oh, yeah. Which Way But Loose, is that yes. what it was? Yes, it was. Okay. Yeah. Now that we both yeah. officially dated ourselves. <laughs> That's fine. I I don't pretend to not be... 47 and a half. So anyway, um, that's a really fun, interesting podcast. They also checked in. Uh, Long Haul Paul was like, everybody's worried about the food supply chain. Just want to reassure you, we're still out here trucking, you know. Good job, Paul. So right before all this kind of exploded, I was listening to a lot of political podcasts because the thing that we were pretty obsessed with was obviously the election. Um, And there's a great podcast called LBJ and the Great Society, which has a lot of archival recordings of Lyndon Johnson, who, like Nixon, secretly recorded his phone calls. Not everybody knows this, but he's an extremely delightful person to eavesdrop on. Yeah, very, very, very. He works blue. A lot of, yeah. a lot of, yeah, yeah. a lot he's of very, uh, below the belt references. Right. So when he's trying to get Sergeant Shriver to head up something called the war on poverty and Sergeant Shriver doesn't want to do that because JFK was just assassinated and he's also running the Peace Corps, which has just been invented. And Lyndon Johnson says, you know, like, I know you have the intelligence and I know you have the skills, but I don't know if you have the glands. <laughs> and he's like, the glands 
And he's like, I have plenty of glands. And then he ends up running the war on poverty. And it's basically just a fascinating, you know, you get to hear how someone, how the system was created that did take care of society, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, you know, food stamps. And listening to this in the first week of March, as I was, I was thinking about Bernie and Biden and, yeah. you know, the proposals we're all thinking about to try to improve this country. And now that's all in a different context. And it's it's really interesting to listen to. I do think you have a different definition of escapist than I do. But that's OK. <laughs> it's a, we contain multitudes here in podcast land. I was expecting to hear about spaceships or gardening. Yeah, I don't really love spaceships. Um, although, okay, yeah, I, I listen to this podcast sometimes called Bird Note, which I get a real kick out of, which is just one different bird every day. Um, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and what it sounds like, uh, <laughs> that's still going on. So in the pure speculation realm, I'm wondering what you think podcasting will do in the near and medium term. And I, I had a couple thoughts. One is, you know, we can keep doing stuff like this. Aside from our tech issues, it's relatively easy to put podcasts together. You know, television uh, can't do production. Films can't do production. Maybe there's a chance for podcasting to sort of fill some of those voids that media was going to, uh, other media voids. Um, I'm also thinking about sort of, uh, I've been watching some of the late night hosts do their, you know, yeah, which I've really enjoyed. I really enjoy them. And I also think without naming names, you can tell who's really good. Yeah. And who because they can operate from their from their couch and be really funny and who's clearly not comfortable with it. And that also seems like very podcast adjacent. Yeah. And this world of sort of lo-fi entertainment. I don't think it's going to keep us satisfied forever, but I, I think it could fill that hole. But you tell me what you think. Do you think it makes sense for podcasting to sort of respond to the moment? Or do you think we you're going to hear sort of podcasts carry on doing the thing they were doing unless, of course, they were a sports podcast or a news podcast? I think they have to do both because no one wants to think about the pandemic all the time. But also the pandemic has kind of changed everything, not just about our day-to-day -day lives right now, but forever without being, you know, it's, we're just at the beginning of it. And there's going to be a lot of loss and a lot of grief and a lot of societal disruption in lots of different ways. There already is, you know, so I think to just, it's funny, it really has changed what I consider to be, um, I don't want to say entertaining, but um, what I want to consume right now. Because if it's too disconnected, sometimes I get antsy, like it's totally irrelevant all of a sudden. Um, sometimes some things you just like to escape into. But um, one of the things that I found interesting is that if it feels like it's relevant on some level, but not directly about it, it's satisfying. Like this is not a podcast, but I just watched that HBO BBC series years and years that came out a few months ago. Oh, I've been thinking about that show. Yeah. I hadn't seen it and I, I thought it would be really dystopian and thus too stressful to watch, you know, mid Trump administration, but it actually watching it now felt really deeply satisfying. Cause I was like, yes, you get it. You know, this oh, is actually, man, I'm happening. feeling my chest clench up even just talking. About, I found that show so great and so stressful. I couldn't even yeah. watch the last episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, I, I can't, I can't recommend it highly enough and it's also awful and maybe you don't want to watch it right now, but sure. Yeah. I'll save that for the TV show. Review. But on some weird level, you feel like 
it's talking about now. And I, I find myself thinking about the leftovers a lot, the book and the series, yep. which just seemed so crazily dystopian when I first read it, you know, several years ago. And now even the thing with all the celebrities, you know, with like in the leftovers, all these celebrities yeah. are among the disappeared and one faked it. The co- the cousin from uh, perfect stranger. <laughs> and I am so shocked funny. to see Contagion, the movie, and uh, there's another yeah. outbreak of the movie up on the Netflix charts. And part of me thinks, maybe that's just someone watching for a minute and then going, I can't watch this. But maybe people do want to do want to visit that stuff that is real, but also distant in some way. Right, right. Yeah, I, I don't know what to predict, but um, I do think podcasts will have to do both. The other thing is nobody knows what's happening with advertising right now other than it's obviously drying up immediately. Will it level out once the stimulus comes through? I mean, we don't know. Listen, people still have to buy underwear. Uh, I'm do. sure they're going to go to Mac Weldon <laughs> and use the recode code. <laughs> Yeah. Fine underwear. Um, <laughs> well, here's here's my main question. There have been yeah. a series of podcasts in response to coronavirus. Some range, yeah. some are very practical. Right. Some are explicitly not practical. Is there are there any of them that you would highly recommend? I wrote about this a little while ago, just as everything was radically changing here, like that second Mm -hmm. week of March when I was desperate for coronavirus information. And I felt like a lot of people hadn't really woken up to what was happening yet. That's obviously changed completely. But at that time, and still now, actually, the podcast I liked most about coronavirus was this strange big brother-like, seemingly computer-generated podcast it's not, it's a human, uh, called Coronavirus 411. It's just made by a man who felt that there needed to be better coronavirus podcasts. And it's just a roundup of news from the WHO and the CDC. Is that and... Brian McCullough? No. No. His name isn't in the podcast. I, I can give it to you. But it's. I really like that. It's just sort of pure information with a lot of numbers in it. Mm-hmm. And I find it strangely reassuring to just be given pure information, and it's very global, and it it ends with numbers of cases in each country and state and everything, and it's sobering, but I actually just appreciate it for its purity. Joe Biden just started a coronavirus podcast that is kind of the opposite of that. Um, <laughs> I think there are a lot of sort of conversational coronavirus podcasts that I don't find especially useful, especially now that we have coronavirus information everywhere. And we'll leave it there. Sarah, thank you again for your time. Thank you. And putting up with the tech. I appreciate it. You too. Be well. Good luck. Keep trucking. (laughs) Thanks again to Sarah. Thanks again to you guys for listening. Thanks very much to Jelani and Joel who are editing and producing this thing. It's a ton of work. I'm very appreciative and I'm appreciative of all the work you guys do all year round. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week or maybe even sooner with a special guest. Talk soon, either way.